Hope Church. So we're going to continue this morning in our study through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 21 of the book of Acts. If you want to turn there um, in your Bibles or get there on your app, however you're doing that this morning. Uh, But we're going to continue here uh, through Paul's um, journey on his way to Jerusalem. And there's some interesting things in this chapter that I think will grab our attention today and uh, things we can learn from and grow from together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll dive right in. So Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your many blessings to us, God. We are here to give you praise, to praise your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and who rose from the dead, to do so um, through the direction and power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that your um, presence would be known among us today, uh, that it would be obvious and evident that you are here um, in our midst. Help us to have discernment um, from you, God, and all things of life. Give us your wisdom, your perspective, um, Lord, and help us to follow that and to submit ourselves um, to following you uh, with our whole hearts and minds and with all of our strength. Uh, But Lord, at the same time, we acknowledge that we're weak and we can only do that through your help. And so we need you uh, to empower us and we thank you that you do so through your Holy Spirit. We pray these things, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. All right, so let's just read the first 14 verses of Acts 21 uh, to get us started this morning. And there's going to be some travel here. Again, um, Bible maps are, are helpful, and you can just, you know, you can type into Google, you know, Paul's Missionary's Journeys or Paul's Journey to Jerusalem, and, you know, all these little spot map will pull up with all these little spots, and you can look at it pretty easily and quickly there. But it says, And when he had parted from them and set sail, that's... Um, Going back to chapter 20, parting from the Ephesian elders in Miletus. And he says, We have parted from there and set sail. We came by straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Telemus, and we greeted the brethren and stayed with them. Uh, Ptolemy, sorry, and we greeted the brethren there and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, 
we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Okay, so let's stop there for a moment. Um, And as we read this, you know, it could be, I think, pretty easy to misunderstand what happened in Tyre at the end of verse 4, where it says, and through the Holy Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And how the disciples reacted to the prophecy of Agabus in verse 12. Um, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. I think it's, it'd be pretty simple, based on just that information, to question Paul going to Jerusalem. And say, hey, maybe you're not actually supposed to do that. And so this is one of those great places in Scripture we, we can actually put into practice what we teach as far as how to approach the Scripture and how to test you know, your hypothesis. If you have a hypothesis here that you know, it, it might not have been okay for Paul to continue on to Jerusalem, you can test that and see whether that's a valid conclusion or an invalid conclusion. So how do you test that? Well, the first thing you do is you look at the larger context because you know and and this is one of these things that happens and just so you're aware of this when you know when you um just open your bible uh just at a at a kind of a random place and say i'm going to pull something out of this for my life today it's a lot easier to come to misunderstandings and the wrong conclusions than if you're going you know through an entire book you know chapter by chapter verse by verse that's just reality, you know, and sometimes the Lord is gracious to us. You know, if you ever have been in a bad situation or something and you've prayed and be like, Lord, give me something in your word. And you just kind of, you know, flip open your Bible and it seems like that verse is there. You know, God may give you grace in your life sometimes to have that sort of experience. But that's really not how we're supposed to approach the scripture on like a day by day basis. You know, he's probably supposed to just be like, let me just flip it and wherever it lands, I'll just read a few verses from there. And try to take and try to apply something to my life. You're probably going to come to a lot of misunderstandings. So, that being said, if we read, take the entire book of Acts as a whole, um, we're going to see some things. One is in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. It says, "Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there.'" I must also see Rome. And so, you know, he does that, you know, in the spirit. It doesn't say he did that in his flesh. That's what's key there. He does that in the spirit, not in his flesh. It's not just like what Paul wants to do, but it's in the spirit. Then we have Paul with the Ephesians elders in Acts 20. And he says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Okay, so what he's saying there to the Ephesian elders, the elders from Ephesus, from the church in Ephesus, he says... You know, he knows it's gonna ha- this is going to happen to him that as he's going to be bound, as he goes on to Jerusalem. And he says that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, that this is a repeated message that he's receiving from God of what's going to happen. It's not a one-off sort of thing that he's heard. But multiple times, he, the same message has come to him. 
We also know from you know prior experiences that you know Paul's um, been in tune with the Holy Spirit. For example, when he doesn't go into the area of Asia at that time because of the vision of the man in Macedonia saying, come to help us. And so the fruit of all of that in Macedonia was evidence that Paul had heard from the Lord correctly on that matter. Then he goes, remember, and remember this from our previous studies, then he goes into Asia, which includes the city of Ephesus, um, and shares you know, the message there and lives there for a number of years. Um, and so he's been in tune with God's plan and with God's timing throughout his life and, and ministry. Okay, So we have that to consider. We also need to remember that God is consistent. It's very improbable that God is going to give Paul this mission and give him these you know, testimonies that we read about um, in Acts chapter 19 and 20, and then in chapter 21, as he gets closer to Jerusalem, to change the plan. That's an unlikely thing to happen. We also need to remember the teachings of Jesus. This is the third thing. What does God say about this sort of stuff? Um, the, the teachings of Jesus. Jesus, from the beginning of his public ministry, think about this, in his beginning of his public ministry in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's toward the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Now think about at the end, toward the end of his public ministry, John chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, in the night he's betrayed and he's with his disciples. And he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks that he's offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And so we have the testimony of Jesus about the matter that some of his, you know, he's, he's there sp- speaking um, at this point really to the eleven because Judas, you know, be- would betray him. He's speaking to the eleven. But then we also know that, that Paul is an apostle born out of, you know, out of, Tom, and so he's you know placed in among this group of people as an, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so um, we have this, even though he wasn't the one to replace um, Judas, you really end up with like 13 you know apostles when it's kind of said and done here. Now this is this is where it comes in on the human side on the fourth thing, we know that it's, it's, we need to remember it's human nature to avoid suffering for oneself and especially for a loved one. That's human nature, right? When, when outnumbered, because, you know, we, we, we talk about this, you know, we have flight or fight responses to situations, right? But when outnumbered with no foreseeable option of the use of force for protection, flight is the natural response. That's the natural response. So that and and we need to remember that. So they, you know, these disciples who are hearing that Paul is going to suffer don't want him to suffer, and they also have a history behind that to justify it through their past experiences. In Acts chapter nine, shortly after Paul's conversion, there was a plot to kill him in Damascus, and Paul was lowered through an opening in the wall in a large basket. They didn't just let Paul get executed then. In Acts chapter 17, for his safety, Paul was sent from Thessalonica to Berea, 
when the people from Thessalonica came to Berea, he was sent away again and went to Athens. So they've got a pattern of when there's a threat to Paul's life, what do we do? We send Paul somewhere else because we don't want him to die. They're viewing it also in this scenario and, and their perspective of the mission to preach the gospel to all the people groups. And they know what a vital role Paul plays in that. How particularly gifted he is by God in his ministry. And the thought of that being lost in the early church is, a, is devastating. You know, they don't want, they don't, they can't fathom a, a, a foreseeable, you know, future over the next few years without the Apostle Paul being vibrant in his ministry, you know, moving forward. So, of course, they want to protect him because of how they view the, the mission of, of God. It's not that they're bad people, it's not that they're being selfish. Um, it's that they are being very pragmatic about the situation. They're being very pragmatic. Um, and that's all very understandable um, based on the information that they have and, and the experience that they have in the past. The problem is, in their reaction, they had the right information. They understood what the Holy Spirit said was going to happen to Paul but they didn't have the discernment to know that that was the will of God in this case. They lacked that peace because of their protectionism came into play. And so they lacked that peace. And so that's where, you know, Paul has to say steadfast, even though everybody's trying to talk him out of going to Jerusalem, he has to say steadfast in what he's doing. And he says this, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? You know, I mean, he's pained by their pain. He's like, you know, how y'all are reacting to this is causing me pain. You know, is 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 what Paul is saying here, and rightfully so. But he's he lets them know firmly, and and Luke even accounts himself as one of the ones who's trying to persuade Paul out of this. Um, but we see him say, I am ready not only to to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Like I'm prepared. I understand what is going on here and what could happen. But he's still ready. So they said when he would not be persuaded, we see saying the will of the Lord be done. And there are certain situations in life that come down to just that, where, you know, that's all you're left with is to pray the will of the Lord be done. Um, And so that should hopefully help us to to come to the right conclusion um, on the matter is how we, we view this passage and understand it in its you know, context of the book of Acts and its larger context um, in Scripture. Um, and to understand that Paul isn't just going off half-cocked in his own flesh here. But he is doing what God had instructed him to do. Because God has told him that he's going to have to bear witness both in, you know, in Jerusalem and in Rome. And even um, at the beginning of you know Paul's con- convert Paul's conversion. You know right after that, in, in the prophecies about him, it's the Lord is saying he's you know that Paul is going to have to learn how much he's going to have to suffer for the name of the Lord. And so he knows what he's gotten himself into from day one. And this is the, the culmination of that, 
um, with the beginning of that process some 20 years later. Okay? And Paul might even be surprised that he's been around this long, <laughs> you know, to, to, to preach and to serve the Lord, that he's been around for 20 years to do that. Um, and so here we go. Now, what I don't want us to lose sight of in this passage, in these first um, 14 verses here, that there's something here that's, that's pretty cool is, you know, wh- whose house are they staying at in Caesarea? Philip the evangelist. And so I want to remind us, us this morning, um, or if you weren't here for that particular lesson, uh, back in Acts chapter 8, we find Philip the evangelist preaching to a youth Ethiopian eunuch um, on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he's out in the desert. He catches up to this Ethiopian eunuch in the desert and shares the gospel with him. The Ethiopian eunuch becomes a believer um, in Jesus and then continues on to Ethiopia. But what happens to Philip? Notice this in Acts chapter 8, verses 39 and 40. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no, no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found him at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And at Caesarea is where we find Philip's house. So that happened in Acts 8, and this is Acts 20. And there's about 20 years between Acts 8 and Acts 20. That's one of the things we have to remember as we go through, as you read through the book of Acts. You know, we read it, and it seems like it all happens very fast, you know, because we're just you know, going week by week, you know, a half a chapter or a chapter at a time. And, you know, it, so we've done, we're going to do this whole thing in like eight months. And that's, and not if you, I mean, if you read it, it might seem like even shorter period of time. If you just read, you know, first verse to the end of the book in one afternoon. Um, but this is, you know, we've got about 20 years here between Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 21. And so why did Philip the evangelist, he's got this gift of evangelism, why does he set up shop and raise his family in Caesarea? What was the purpose of that? And what we know is that Caesarea, this coastal town, was a strategic place. Um, and, and we'll talk about the harbor that it had in a moment, but it's also on this, on this road that goes from Tyre in the north down to Egypt, in the south, and it's also about 70 miles you know, west of Jerusalem. Um, and so it's strategically located on this main road, and it also has this harbor. Now, right before the time of, you know, when Jesus comes onto the scene, right as Jesus comes onto the scene, um, and through this time, Caesarea is in its heyday. Um, everything has, it was a little outpost that has now, you know, been built up into this amazing city. I mean, this place is phenomenal. Like, what the Romans did here um, is incredible. It's next to this very fertile valley with a temperate climate where you could grow anything, you know, many different types of things, you know, very well, just incredible soil. Um, And where there wasn't really a harbor, a natural harbor there, so the Romans built one. And you can go, you could dive down there today at Caesarea and you'll find these mammoth stones that are concrete. It's actually just not really stones, it's concrete that's been there 
and is rock hard from 2,000 years ago that the Romans placed there. They were master engineers. These people, when it came to engineering things, they were phenomenal. I mean, they built this harbor out of nothing. And they made, you know, and for, you know, <laughs> for so long, it kind of been, the secret had been lost into history of how did they make concrete that was so good. And, you know, modern testing has figured out that they actually, one of the, one of the things they used in it, because uh, it had to be able to set in water. Uh, so one of the things they used in it was volcanic ash that they brought over from Italy that they transported you know, by the shipload, tons and tons and tons of this stuff over across the Mediterranean in order to build this harbor. Like, when they set their mind to, you know, when, when the guys in charge say, we want a harbor here, the engineers don't go, well, that's kind of logistically ridiculous because we got to go get all this volcanic ash from over here. No, they just go, okay, we're going to do it because they said to do it, and so we want to live and stuff. Um, and they had also had a mindset, and of an engineering mindset of anything that we set out to build, we can build. The aqueducts they built, you know, the roads they built. Uh, and, and in fact, all of this, in terms of the, though the, the Romans did a lot of evil and wicked things, in terms of their infrastructure and the way they built ships and the way they built road, roads and the way people could travel, it really helped the gospel go forward throughout the world. Like the timing of it was right in order for the gospel to go forward throughout the world in a very fast and powerful way. Uh, you could get places much easier than you could at the pa- in the past. And so um, Caesarea not only has this harbor, it has an amphitheater, it has a citadel, it has a palace, it has a hippodrome, which if you're not familiar know what that is, it's like a racetrack for horses that they could run the chariots on. Um, they had huge statues everywhere. You know, art, culture, like this is an amazing place. If you walked in its heyday, if we stepped you in there right now today, you would be amazed and awed at what it, what it was. Your jaw would probably drop at how amazing this place was. And there's some other interesting um, characters who lived here that also show some of its significance. The centurion Cornelius we found in Acts chapter 10. Um, who, who has the vision and then goes and gets, you know, has sins for Peter. That's where he lives, Caesarea. Pontius Pilate also lived in Caesarea. Um, his house was on a, built on a rock in the middle of the harbor that you can still go today and see the foundation of. Okay, so that lets you know a little bit more about what this place is. Pontius Pilate, you know, was... was one who washed his hands at the crucifixion of Jesus, saying, you know, my blood is innocent. My hands are, are innocent of, the, of this man. You know, he symbolically washed his hands. But the reality is, he was in charge there, you know, largely. And he was guilty. There's also the other reality. He was guilty in like a legal, like doing his job sense. But the other side of it is that we're all guilty. And if it's not for your sin and for my sin, Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross. But because you and I are sinful, because you and I had broken God's laws and not met his standard of perfection, Jesus had to go to the cross on our behalf. So we're all guilty, not just Pontius Pilate, not just the people who yell, crucify him, crucify him. But in a spiritual sense, every one of us, guilty before God. 
But as you can see, the Caesarea would have been a strategic location for Philip to set up shop because people are coming from all over the world to do business there, to do trade there. All these ships are always coming into the harbor. He can go and share Jesus you know, with anybody he wants to. We also know he, you know, he speaks Greek. He's multilingual. Like, so he can converse in the common language of the day. He can you know, use translators for other languages. Uh, he can really get in there and just share the good news of Jesus and have that good news go out all over the place around the world as people are coming to Caesarea for trade and for politics and for other things. So um, when he gets there, he doesn't have a need to go any further because when he's there, the world's going to come to him and he's going to have, you know, he can raise his family there and, and live his life there. Uh, and that was obviously what God wanted for, for his life while he wanted for uh, Paul to go around and not stay in places most of the time for very long, even though he stays in Ephesus for three years. And, you know, he stays in other places, you know, a year, 18 months. Sometimes it's just a few weeks. Sometimes it's a day or two. Um, you know, you have to know what you're called to do and then do that. You know, and, and Philip can't look at Paul's calling and say, well, I should have done that. That wouldn't be right. That's not, that wasn't his calling. And Paul can't look at Philip's calling and say, well, I wish I could have lived in the same city for 20 years. And raised a family and everything else. That's not, it wasn't God's calling on his life. And if they get into the comparison game, that becomes problematic for both of them. And so, you know, you can't compare your life to other people. You have to be firm before God, like, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And then pursue that, do that. Um, and, and what happens, what I don't want us to do in this Acts 21 you know, scenario is then to say, well, the council was wrong and Paul, you know, it was a distraction and Paul had to, you know, put it aside and not listen to it. Therefore, I don't need to listen to counsel. That would be an abuse of this scripture because the entirety of scripture tells us to seek out wise counsel. Okay, we have to have the discernment and, you know, it is what I'm receiving from the spirit or from, you know, the flesh and how confident I am in that assertion if I'm saying it's from the spirit. Okay, but again, take the big picture. Don't just use that and say, well, Paul didn't listen to these people, so I ain't going to listen to nobody. You know, that, that's not going to that's not going to fly. That's not going to fly. For one thing, you're not an apostle. So, you know, we'll just go ahead and. <laughs> Dismiss that pretty quickly. Okay, um, let's as we as we move on. So let's go to ch- verse. Um, let's see, we finished at fourteen, right? And so let's go to verse fifteen. Uh, and it says they went up after those days. After those days, we went and packed and went up to Jerusalem. And also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain. Menson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? 
The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and purify, and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you kept also, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have rewritten and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. All right, let's stop there. And talk about this for a minute, because some, uh, some of this, um, you know, as you read it, you may find it a little bit unsettling. You might have the question like, okay, why is Paul agreeing to do these things when we also know that the law has been fulfilled in Christ? Why, why is he even willing to have you know, things sacrificed when Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice? When we know that all these things were just shadows, that they were pictures of the reality that, as Hebrews tells us, the reality that was to come, and that Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, and he's the ultimate high priest, and that old system is fading away to be done away with. That sounds sounds a little bit harsh, but that's the reality here of what this, you know, as we, especially, particularly, you know, just read the book of Hebrews, and you you see that. And, And you also say, well, wait a second, you know, we also have the book of, Galatians that Paul at this point has already written that tells us that you know the you know the the he's going against the Judaizers and those who are preaching the set necessity of circumcision, um, and and so what do we do with all of that? So here's what we have to do with it. Again, context context is important. So if we read First Corinthians chapter nine. This make it, I think, abundantly clear. First Corinthians chapter nine, beginning in verse nineteen um, through twenty-two, and says, "For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ." that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So this is Paul's perspective in ministry. He says he puts himself under the law, even though he's freed from it, because you know the penalty has been paid in Jesus. He's, free. he's especially free from the, from the ceremonial laws. He says in that statement, you know, he's, he's still under the law of Christ, you know, love God, with all that you are, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Like those are not done away with in any system. Those are still like mandatory, you know, commandments to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, that means you're not going to seek to do harm to your neighbor. That means you're not going to, you're not going to profane, you know, God. You're not, you know, going to, going to, you know, blaspheme him or anything like that. So, there's a, that, that's true no matter what, but he knows he's not under the ceremonial, the ceremonial laws anymore. But he still follows many of them. Why? 
He puts himself under the law to reach those who are under the law. Because he's going to the weakness of their position because they still view themselves as bound by the law. He then, in order to not offend them more than he already has to, through the gospel, follows their customs and their ways. Now, what he's against, as you read in the book of Galatians, is you know the the Jew, some of the Jewish people, especially those who become believers, then tell believers in Jesus, then telling the Gentiles, you have to put yourself under the law and be circumcised and go through all these religious ceremonies and to go through all these things, which he claims, you know, we haven't been able to to keep the whole law of Moses, and now you're going to burden these people who were never under the law of Moses. Under these ceremonial regulations, you're going to put that burden on them. That's wrong. Don't do that. And that's even affirmed by James when he says, we've written letters, and we know that from prior, earlier in the book of Acts, where this matter has already been settled, that the, you know, he, he reinforces that in verses 25 and 26, with concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have re- written and decided they, they should observe no such thing. With a few exceptions, but these things are these exceptions are things that God would be against, regardless of the culture, regardless of the times, regardless of of, of anything else. Like you're never going to find a time, as much as people want to, you're never going to find a time where God's okay with sexual immorality. You're not going to find it from Genesis to Revelation. Where God is just like, well, do whatever you want with your bodies, with other people. You're just not going to find that, ever. And those, that, it, there's just a, a firm thing of God's you know, holiness and his character that he refuses to have changed or violated, regardless of what culture says what. And if you think our culture is like extreme... And it's anything goes approach. I mean, I would say at this point it's getting kind of extreme and it's anything goes approach. But have you met the Romans? Hello? It doesn't really get much more extreme than them when it comes to do whatever you want. And if God says those same, if he says that same thing for the Gentiles in the Greek and Roman culture that are coming to follow Jesus, that they need to keep themselves from sexual immorality, I mean, that's got to stay true like, no matter what culture you're in. He doesn't give them a cultural pass and say, well, you've got pornography everywhere. You've got sexual, you know, look, I mean, what's going on in the, in the pagan temples and all of this stuff? What's going on in all the streets? Well, you, you know, that's just part of your culture, so we will just, you know, go ahead with all of that. No, it's like, you know, even if you read the book of Corinthians, he has all this list and he says, and such were some of you. The expectation being, when a person follows Jesus, that their life is then going to change. And unfortunately, we've gotten to a point in you know modern Christianity where there's no expectation as long as a person says a prayer where they say, you know, God forgive me and Jesus, I believe in you. That there's no expectation other than saying that prayer. And then that the rest of life could just rather continue on unfazed. Still do business the same. Still treat neighbors the same. Still do the same sexual immoralities. 
nothing has to change because we've said the prayer and so we're good, right? And that comes across ultimately as caring more about how many people we can say we're saved, how many people we can say we're baptized, how many people we can say are members of the church versus actually caring about people's spiritual lives and like their health, spiritual health before God. It smacks of caring about the external appearance of, of like the you know church is doing well versus the reality versus reality. All right, back in to finish this. We need to finish this up. Um, so this is why ultimately. Paul is willing to take these vows and go through these customs and do these things is because he still desperately, he desperately wants his fellow countrymen to know Jesus as he does. That's his motivation in this. That's his motivation. He's not just doing something to make people happy. He's got a motivation of, of the gospel of Jesus you know, in this. And so this is what he does. Now, verse 27, we see, Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and then they saw the commander and the soldiers. They stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with chains, and he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried out one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken to the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after him, crying out, Away with him! Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And here the commander replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. And so again, we see the advantage of, you know, well, let's go back a minute and then we'll get to that. But we see um, Paul trying to follow through to be all things to all people, to be as one under the law, to reach those under the law. Uh, and things kind of go cr- a little bit differently, a little bit crazy um, here as some from the province of Asia. Again, that's where Ephesus is, where P- Paul had spent a lot of time there. And so people in that whole area know him because it says that you know, because of his ministry in Ephesus, the entire province of Asia knows who Jesus is. Like, that's how effective his ministry was 
there in, in the city of Ephesus that the entire province know, of Asia knows um, who Jesus is. Now, they make some assumptions that are not you know, fully accurate. There's, like, you know, there's partial truths in some of their accusations, but it's not the full truth, it's not the full picture, it's not the full story. Um, and they also assume that Paul had brought Trophimus in with him just because they had seen Trophimus earlier uh, with Paul. Um, but, you know, Paul wouldn't have done that, especially at that time, because, you know, he, he knew the culture and, and the situation with where the, the people were. And he wasn't looking to start a riot. You know, he wasn't, that wasn't his purpose. So the people seize him. This, you know, the commander, and, and you see God's work here in hand in this as well, because, you know, it's not time for Paul to be killed. He hasn't been able to give his testimony to the Jewish leaders. He hasn't been able to give his testimony to the, to the Roman leaders. And so, you know, the centurions and the commander of the garrison are all there, the soldiers, and they, came, they come and they carry Paul out. And he's about to take him in the barracks, so he's up these steps. And so you can imagine this huge crowd now below and Paul says to the garrison commander, you know, can I speak to, may I speak to you? And then the commander's kind of surprised. He's like, wait, you speak Greek? And so now, you know, Paul's cross-cultural life comes to benefit him again. You know, he, again, he was, he was um, you know, born uh, in a situation where he's going ha- to live this life that's a... Um, Part of his time is spent in the Roman world, and, and part of his time is spent in the Jewish world as he's trained you know, by Gamaliel, as he has raised a Pharisee. Yet, he's got all this exposure as a Roman citizen, um, and his understanding of the language and, and the culture and the Roman culture. Um, he can easily go back and forth and communicate in, in both scenarios. Um, and so then there's, there's a, a misunderstanding of the, who the Romans think he is. Aren't you the Egyptian? You know, he's like, no, nope, I'm, I'm not the Egyptian, you know, but I'm a citizen of, of Tarsus. And so as a citizen, and Paul's going to use this through the rest of the book of, the book of Acts, as a citizen of Rome, he has, uh, as a Roman citizen, I should say, um, he has certain rights. Um, and so, you know, this... And one of those rights is a protection here. Like, you know, they didn't want the mob just to violently, you know, they don't want mob riots, you know, in the Roman-controlled lands. That's a bad thing just for, like, politically and, and, you know, your soldiers end up getting picked off unnecessarily and you end up with lots of problems. And then, you know, the higher-ups in the Roman government will send somebody else to clean house and and kick you out of your job. So they have a, a vested interest in maintaining some law and order and peace here. But when he finds out he's a Roman citizen, it's like, whoa, now I really got to protect this guy. Because you can't just have a Roman citizen you know, being slaughtered by the, the people that you overlord. Right? So you know, there's, a, there's a protection that comes into place here. Um, and so now he's going to get um, that, that guy's attention through his ability to speak Greek. But then, so verse 40 says, So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, 
Come back next week to find out what he said. Uh, we never do that here, but we just did. All right. <laughs> so next week, we're going to find out what he gave uh, in the message. So instead of... You know how effective that would be if, you, if, you know, if we had a language that hasn't, hadn't been translated yet into the Bible? You know how effective that would be in terms of like, come back next week to hear what happened to Paul? But y'all can go home this afternoon and read what happened if you want to. Um, but our main lessons, our main points you know, for tonight are you know, when you're certain that something with the, is the will of God in, you know, in your life, in your ministry, in your work, like, don't be dissuaded you know, from that. Seek wise counsel, but have the discernment to know. Um, pray for the discernment to know whether that counsel is from God, uh, from the Spirit, or from the flesh. And then, you know, as, as Paul did throughout his life, he did so without sinning. He said he's able to live with a clear conscience. But without sinning, you know, be, you know he stressed to be all things to all people. And so, you know, his, his method of ministry was not he, he spoke the truth and he spoke it firmly, but his, his method of ministry was to seek common ground when he could, where he could seek common ground. He wasn't unnecessarily trying to stir things up. Because the gospel, you know, he had, a, he had a main message and he stayed on point with that message, you know, about Jesus Christ. And so we need to consider that. And also to consider, you know, in your own life, if there's certain people God's called you to reach, what do you need to change or what do you need to do in order to reach them more effectively, uh, you know, and it, it could be like simple things, you know, if you, if you want to reach people of a certain culture and they come to your house, you know, to eat, you know, what sort of food are you serving? Are you, are you thinking about them and the sorts of things they're willing to eat and not willing to eat or the th- types of things they like to eat or don't like to eat when you invite them to your home? You know, you may have to change your menu in order to be more effective. Are you willing to do that? Or are you just going to be like, well, in our house, it's a meat and two veggies. That's just how it is, you know. And and be like, and, and be inflexible in that. But we what we see through the life of Paul for the sake of the gospel is a, there's a flexibility. There are lines he's not willing to cross because he has his standards before God. But if it's not that, he's willing to be flexible. He's willing to be adaptable. He's willing to change, and ultimately, he's willing to be a consumable for God as he's going ultimately to die in his proclamation of the gospel. Wherever you are in your devotion to Jesus, this morning as you take the bread and the cup, you know, let's put that before him and ask him to help us to move forward in our devotion to him. What we're willing to do for others and what we're willing to do for his name and for his sake. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege to look into your word. So rich in that chapter, so many things, and uh, there's not there's some of it we didn't we certainly didn't get to explore this morning, Lord. But we thank you. That is so deep. Um, that is it's simultaneously simplistic and deep. And we thank you for that truth about uh, the scriptures. That there's so many things that just as children we could understand and we could say, yes, God, we need you. Yes, Jesus, you died for us and you rose from the dead. And yet, you know, the most scholarly person can spend their whole life trying to dig into the depths of your word and still have so much more to learn. We thank you, God. Because ultimately, only you could have written a book like that. 
And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us in our lives to have discernment, to know your will and to do it. Help us to be willing to pay the, the price, uh, whatever it is, when you ask us to do something to follow you. And sometimes those are little things that are hard to give up, and sometimes those are big things that require great sacrifice. But Lord, regardless, help us to strive to love you with all that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to be people who are focused on your gospel and sharing and spreading your gospel, Lord. So we thank you uh, for the example of people like Paul, and we thank you for the example of Philip. Um, And we thank you for all that you've given us in your son Jesus. And as we take that bread and that cup, we give thanks and we say, Lord, may our devotion be holy for you and may it grow. May it grow this morning, Lord, our devotion for you. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Mm -hmm.